0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. We are returning to our series in the gospel of Luke, and we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 20, end of the beginning of chapter 21, where Luke, I believe, has intentionally put two scenes together, a scene of Jesus turning and teaching to his disciples. Remember, uh, several weeks ago now, We saw Jesus being engaged by the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes, pelting him with questions, challenging his authority. And Jesus wisely, biblically, responding to those questions. And now he's put all that behind him. And now he turns to issue a warning to his disciples in light of what he's just seen, in light of what they're going to see around them. And then, then, not only giving a negative example by way of warning, but a positive example in which to follow. A contrast between those that are not living as they should with God and one. It was a beacon of light in the midst of darkness. Hear the word of God this morning, Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. May God bless the reading of His Word. As we begin this sermon this morning, I want to pull back the curtain just a little bit because this kind of passage, I think, any honest, self-aware pastor would confess is not one he would ever choose to preach on. This is likely not the one if the pastor is choosing the text week by week that he would immediately think of to bring before his congregation. Perhaps verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21, but never these final verses in chapter 20 because they so clearly identify the sinful weaknesses that we ministers are most tempted to and must regularly fight against. Here Jesus condemns the learned spiritual leaders of God's people who love to be seen in fancy clothes and have honorific titles and acknowledgments and receive special favors all because of what they do. Leaders are always tempted to enjoy the physical perks than the spiritual works of our ministry. Worst of all, we are tempted to do what we do, not for God, but for men. We are tempted to put on a show of service rather than actually serve. And Jesus just despises all that sort of thing. These things are the very epitome, the very antithesis of who Jesus is and how He served in His own life. Consider Jesus. The one in whom we find a, a, a divine being of eternal glory. A God who deserves all the worship of every created thing in all the universe for all time. Perfect love and obedience with no variation or change. That is what He is worth. And that's not how we live. We are merely created beings who owe everything to God, yet believe he owes everything to us. And therefore we despise, we reject him when he asks the smallest thing of us, even when it's for our good. We exchange his love for vileness in return. And yet this all-glorious Son of God condescends to count the salvation of sinners, the reclamation of damaged goods that we are, a, a smearing of the image of God to bring it back into clarity. He counts all of that more valuable than his own life more valuable than holding on to the glory and the honor that is rightfully His. Therefore, He becomes the very embodiment of humility and sacrifice and service. This is why any whiff of hypocrisy or self-interest is an affront and ridiculously pathetic before the example that we see in Christ. But Christ's rebuke here is not simply applicable to ministers. It's not simply applicable to spiritual leaders for every disciple of Jesus is called. Not just to put our faith in Him, though that is certainly primary, that is certainly forefront, but then also to follow the example that we have in Christ. The problem with liberal theology is that they want to exalt the example and not the faith. They want to exalt the servanthood of Christ and not His sacrifice. And if we're not careful as evangelicals, we will exalt the sacrifice to the point of neglecting the service as an example that we all ought to follow. The New Testament, even Jesus himself makes clear that every disciple is going to be tempted toward the things decried in these verses. And yet here we clearly see Jesus calling us to something better, to something different. Jesus expects that our external actions will authenticate the internal desires and intentions of our heart. That there will be a a single-mindedness a single-soulness, as his half-brother James would say in his letter. Not double-soul, double-mindedness, but a single-mindedness, a a spiritual authenticity to our lives that what you see is what you get. So because this is what Christ our Savior desires, because this is the example that He's left for us, as we think about the meaning and application of these verses, we first need to beware the danger of not living that way, the danger of living with spiritual hypocrisy. We need to beware the danger of spiritual hypocrisy. That's exactly what Jesus is intending when he says, beware of the scribes. Then he goes on to describe the utter hypocrisy of them and how they live their life. Uh, the first way in which we need to be aware of them and their spiritual problems is to consider the characteristics of hypocrisy, the characteristics of hypocrisy. This passage does not give us an exhaustive study of hypocrisy. It does not give us every, uh, every example, every nuance of that sin because it's so multifaceted, it can't be done. Nevertheless, though not an exhaustive example, it does give us a true example, a true picture of hypocrisy's characteristics. As we think about these scribes, notice first of all that hypocrisy enjoys displayed prosperity. Hypocrisy enjoys displayed prosperity. He says in verse 46, "Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. This idea of long robes could speak to the actual length of the robes, uh, whether they be knee length or shin length or ankle length or floor length, uh, the actual length of the material. But we don't know for sure, it could also refer to the length of the tassels that Jews would put at the bottom specifically on on what they had figured the the four corners of their robes to be seeking to follow the command of Numbers 15, that those tassels would be a remembrance of the law of God for them. That as they're walking and living throughout their lives, uh, in in everything that they do, these tassels would be swishing uh, against their legs, reminding them to obey the law of the Lord, to acknowledge Him and love Him and serve Him with all of their mind, heart, soul, and strength. And so some would, we know from history, some would want to emphasize their piety by the length of the tassels. You know, if, if, if someone was, what was godly enough to put the tassels on in the first place, just think how much more godly someone would be if the tassels were a foot long or, or 16 inches long, a display that you were serious about the Word of God. Having that kind of money to increase the length of the tassels or even having enough money to increase the length of your robe in general. The longer the robe meant, the more material meant the more money. All of these things are pointing to the fact that these individuals wanted to represent the affluence that was present in their life. They wanted people to know how wealthy they were because in their mind, if they had money, they were godly. If they had wealth, they had been blessed by God. And so they were putting on a show of godliness by their appearance, rather than their life and their service. Hypocrisy, Jesus says, hypocrisy. More than that, he says that hypocrisy seeks the honored places. Hypocrisy seeks the honored places. Beware of the scribes who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at the feasts. Now, whether it's through the benefits offered to frequent flyers or sub-club members, business of all shapes and sizes try to make their customers feel like if the, that they're getting something special. They're getting the VIP treatment. And in some ways, nothing wrong with that. Uh, I can say this as someone who has benefited from that. I remember uh, on our last uh, trip to the Philippines, uh, Joe was talking to Doug. And so on the way home from the Philippines, we've had this nice mission trip. It's been tiring. We're beating, ready to get home. And Doug says, hey, I've got, this, I've got this gold status with Delta. What does that mean? It means I get in the Sky Lounge. I get the leather seats. I get the comfy footrests. I get the free food and the free drinks. And I'm thinking, what about me? And Delta and all of his generosity allows him to take a guest in. And so I get in on the coattails of my friend who has spent much more time in the air than I probably ever will. I enjoyed and benefited and, 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 and rested up for the very long flight home. But here's the deal. In flying Delta, we give thanks and we're happy because, frankly, uh, we've paid above and beyond anything they're going to give us in the purchase of our tickets. But when we begin to take that mindset of VIP, honored gold status into ministry in the church, oh, what a deadly temptation it is. to think that somehow to, to believe somehow that, that our service to God necessitates, determines, entitled us to something special, that we are something special. that simply turns us into hypocrites. Because we begin serving not to please God, not out of love for one another, but to get the title, to get the perks, to get the privileges. Jesus says, Beware the hypocrisy of the scribes who love to seek out the honored places, to have the greetings in the marketplace of all of the titles, of all the right reverend this, and the this and that and the other. And I meet people today who claim to be pastors and identify themselves as apostles. How do you get any more honorific than that? I'm just not a pastor, I'm not a shepherd, I'm not a bishop, I'm not an elder. I'm an apostle, top that. And in many ways, God has done a work of grace where I am just content if someone calls me John today. Because I know the temptations and the wickedness of the heart of a pastor. And it's so easy to be caught up in seeking out those honored places wherever they may be. Jesus also says that hypocrisy exploits vulnerable people. Hypocrisy exploits vulnerable people. Beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses. Uh, That that is a, a grim and gruesome picture in my mind. Widows were some of the most vulnerable people in ancient society. Unless they were cared for by extended family members or friends, they had no regular means of support. They didn't go out and get a job. They didn't have a welfare system. They had nothing. So it's not surprising in both the Old and the New Testaments that the care and provision for widows is commanded and commended by God. If you want to look more about that, Isaiah 1, James 1, read over those things and, and think about just two examples in, in, in both covenants where God says, care for the widow who cannot care for themselves. Yet here are these men meant to be caring for widows, meant to be spiritual leaders. And what do they do but prey on them? They take advantage of them so that even the homes they once had to live in are devoured. They're gone. They're consumed by their acquisition and hypocrisy. Even today, the most despicable false teachers manipulate the poorest of people into giving the most amount of money to them and to their ministries. They will be judged for that hypocrisy. Finally, we see that hypocrisy offers pretentious prayer. Hypocrisy offers pretentious prayer. One of the most notorious places that I know of for anything resembling this today is the Western Wall, sometimes known as the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. It is the only remaining part of the temple complex that Herod built that was standing in Jesus' day that still exists. And so it's become custom for Jews to gather at that wall, uh, beseeching God to, to revive them. And they will will either stand holding the wall, seeking to be close to, to what used to be the residence of God's presence, or now they will actually write out prayers and stick them into the wall as a way of being heard. And, you know, I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how, but somehow, some way, whenever American politicians show up to that wall, there's a gaggle of photographers around. So that when they go to piously offer the prayer to even put on the yarmulke and stand there, write something out, suddenly there's there's 50 or 60 people snapping pictures away. Why do we think that is? Call me a cynic, but I think it's because of the hypocrisy of their hearts. Whereby they want to be seen as spiritual and pious and somehow better than what they really are. But if we were to press them about why they invited the press there, or if they lived that way behind closed doors, we would not be satisfied with the answer. Likewise, Jesus points to these scribes and he says, Beware of them, for they offer long prayers as a pretense for godliness. I don't really know God, but if my prayers are elaborate enough, if my prayers are beautiful enough, if my prayers are long enough, perhaps you'll come to believe that I'm close with God, that I'm really devout, that I'm really religious, that I'm, I'm really pious. Well, Jesus presents to us this characteristics of hypocrisy, frankly, a bleak picture, but it's a real world picture. Remember that he's not just making this stuff up. This is what he saw. Can you, I mean, this is why I'm not the Messiah. Okay, in case there's any doubt in your mind, I'm not. Okay, But here's why. Can you imagine taking on flesh? Let's just say at 12, he fully became aware of who he was because that's where we see him in the temple uh, engaging in questions and answers. Can you imagine from 12 to 35 or whatever he lived seeing this? Knowing the hypocrisy of the hearts as a 12-year-old, knowing the scriptures and being closer to God than any of these phonies who are running the show and trying to separate Israel and not just striking them down dead? That is restraint, my friends, and I would not have it. But here's the reality. This is a bleak picture. It's a real-world picture. These scribes are real people committed at real sins, but they're just like us if we're not careful. There is nothing both in the characteristics, the specific examples, or in the intentionality behind them that we are not easily tempted to today as God's people. This is why Jesus says that we should only beware their hypocrisy by seeing its characteristics and so maybe see it in us, that it becomes a mirror whereby we identify uh, characteristics in our own life. But he also wants to warn us by telling us to consider the condemnation of hypocrisy. The condemnation of hypocrisy. Notice what Jesus says here. Many Christians will say, all sin's the same. If by that they mean every sin from the smallest to the greatest, from the white lie to the genocide of a nation requires the same penalty, eternal hell, and also requires the same sacrifice for forgiveness, the blood of Christ, then it's a true statement and we would agree. But if by saying all sin is the same they mean that somehow all sin is as bad as any other sin, then they're wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Very often people want to to, to do that out of all kinds of motives, many of which are good intention, but we need to understand the Bible teaches the opposite. There are some sins more offensive to God than others. Consider Proverbs 6, where in the midst of all kinds of sins being pointed out to the young man from his father saying, don't do this, don't do that, we're told, here are things that the Lord hates. Here are things that are abominations to God. And he goes through the list. Numbers 15, God distinguishes between sins that are committed unintentionally, And sins that are committed with the high hand, he says. That is, intentionally against the Lord's direction. High handed to evoke this imagery of saying, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to do what you want. I'm in charge of my life. God says the high handed sin will be judged more severely than the unintentional sin. Likewise, in Ezekiel 8, God says the prophet, son of man, do you see what they are doing? That is, the people of Israel, how they're sinning. Do you see what they are doing? The great abominations the house of Israel are committing here to drive me from my sanctuary. But you will see greater abominations, he says in Ezekiel chapter 8. Some sins are greater than others in God's eyes. Even Jesus can talk to the Pharisees about straining a gnat to swallow a camel, but forgetting the weightier matters of the law. Even within the Old Testament law, there were some commands more important to be kept than others. And he can talk about a greater judgment that will come to those who don't just sin, but cause his little ones to sin. So here, Jesus says, beware of the scribes. Why? Verse 47, they will receive the greater condemnation. God does not mess around with hypocrisy. God has no patience for hypocrisy on the final day. There will be no mitigating circumstances. Now I say, now what does that mean? Aren't all, all people condemned to hell? Yes. So I don't know what that means, but I don't need to know what it means and understand it in order for it to be true. Earlier we, we heard and talked reflected on the Trinity, this glorious, this glorious problem. And if you talk to one of the members here, he'll tell you that his favorite line about the Trinity is this, if you deny it, you go to hell. If you understand it, you lose your mind. That's kind of how it is. How is it that there's only one God who exists eternally as three beings? I don't know. But God makes it clear that's reality. And frankly, it should not surprise us if we have an infinitely glorious God that we would not be able to understand everything there is to understand about him. Likewise, I don't understand how it will be better for some in hell and worse for others. I don't understand it's hell. Just like I don't understand how Jesus also promises it will be better for some in heaven than for others. It's heaven. We're with Christ. It's a world of love. How can it be any better for one another? I don't know. But that's what the Bible says, and so we must believe it. And here, in this context, I think God, Jesus himself, is pointing out to us, look, Flee hypocrisy, beware of hypocrisy because there will be a greater condemnation on the last day for those who live that way. Why though, why? Because it denies God of the one thing that he deserves from all people, glory. How can we glorify God when we're seeking to glorify ourselves? Furthermore, spiritual hypocrisy I think is so abominable to God because it, is, it can only be committed by those who claim to know God. Think about that. Spiritual hypocrisy, and it's true as biblical sense, can only, be, can only be a sin committed by people who claim to be God's people, who claim to love God with all their being, who claim to love their neighbor as their self, who claim to live for the glory of Christ alone. Only they can truly be hypocrites in saying that and not doing it. And so it becomes a deadly sin. And yet, and yet... Just as all sins, though some worse than others, will experience condemnation and hell, so all sins, some worse than others, can also be forgiven through the Lord Jesus Christ. We may be hypocrites, we may be vile hypocrites, but Jesus is a glorious Savior, a Savior who died for all manner of sins. Not just the nice ones, not just the easy ones, not just the ones that we're okay with and are even entertained by. No, he died for all sins. So even the hypocrite, even the scribe here can turn to faith, trust in Jesus, death and resurrection to redeem them from hell and give them to God as his, one of his people. The evidence that we have placed true faith in Christ, the evidence that we are fleeing hypocrisy is seen when we seek the devotion of spiritual authenticity. We need to beware of the danger of spiritual hypocrisy, but more than that, we need to seek... The devotion of spiritual authenticity, that kind of single-minded committedness, that devotion to God. And so so right next to each other, Luke records, Jesus opened, looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of you, than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. What a contrast between these rich and the scribes and this widow. We know nothing of her story. This is not a parable. It's not made up. This really happened. Jesus really sees a woman giving this money. All we know is of her loss and the resulting poverty and simplicity of her lifestyle. She has no husband. She has no means of support. And Jesus stops. Think about this. They're walking through this temple. It's the last days of his of his life. Remember, we're, we're already, though, we're not here Calendar wise, twenty fifteen, gospel story wise, we're already in in the week of the Passion. We're literally a few days away from the cross. Of all the things to be doing and saying, Jesus stops and says, "Look at that woman. Look at her. Do you see what she's doing? Do you see this amazing thing she's setting an example for you, apostles? Don't get big britches. Don't get big heads. Look at this woman and remember what she's doing here. She is an example." Authentic life before God. Why? First of all, we see the sincerity of her authenticity. The sincerity of their authenticity. The context of the scene is the giving of offerings at the temple. The widow is coming alongside these rich to put their gifts into the offering boxes that were there. There were actually several kinds of gifts, multiple receptacles that were horn-shaped. So if you can imagine, you know, a, a kind of exaggerated trumpet, and then turn it with the the blowpiece up and the the top of the horn down. That's what these things looked like. And they were all around, thirteen of them, brass uh, around there, and they were labeled with the kind of gifts that where they were to be given. So you had new shekel dues, old shekel dues, bird offerings, gold for the mercy seat, wood, frankincense, free will offerings and and on and on and on. You have the rich coming in and they're putting their offerings in. And they're putting apparently large sums of money into these things. And you know, if you if you're about my age and your church showed Christian films, really poorly made, cheesy Christian films in the 80s, then you might remember this. Uh, The point was good, even if the execution was bad, okay? And that was a film called Super Christian. And the whole point was not like he's a superhero, but rather he's 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 the hypocrite here, okay? And so he has the kind of SC shirt on. And so what, what, what is evidenced of this? Well, uh, multiple things, but one of them is when the offering plate comes, he doesn't just put his gift in an, in, in an envelope and put it in and put it away. He pulls out his wallet and he begins to count. And so you know the whole church is hung up and everybody's looking going, I don't, I don't know. And he's just like, you're giving, 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 giving. And that's what these guys, is the impression I have. Brass, can you imagine dropping coins in that thing? cha-ching, cha-ching, cling, boom. It just, you have this uh, announcement that you're giving and Jesus is completely unimpressed but doesn't care a lick about what they're giving. Why? Because the economics of the kingdom of God don't work like the economics of the world. God is not so much concerned for the quantity of your offering as he is the quality of Your offering. That's been the case from the very beginning. The very first offerings that are ever recorded apart from God Himself providing it, that is the slaying of the animal to cover Adam and Eve and their sin with blood-dripping animal clothes, is their sons, Cain and Abel, offering to the God. One offering That is, if Cain's was not accepted by God, Abel's offering of blood was accepted. And some will, reading the rest of the scriptures back in that story saying, see, it has to be a blood sacrifice. That's why it wasn't acceptable. Well, hold on a minute. I'm pretty sure even in the law, God accepts the grain offering. Pretty sure he he accepts money. Um, it's not just the blood offering that's acceptable to God. In fact, there's nothing in that passage that tells us that. In fact, Moses, when he writes of that account, says that God did not have regard for Cain and his offering. You see what came first? It was the heart not what was offered. That made all the difference in the world. Unless we miss that, the author of Hebrews puts a finer point on it. In chapter 11, he says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. So he commended him. He commended him for what? For his faith. How? By accepting his gifts. That's the difference. That's why Cain not accepted, Abel accepted, because Abel offered it in faith. It was a quality issue, not a quantity issue. Likewise here, the widow's gift was offered with no pretense. She's not putting on a show. She's not trying to impress anybody. It's simply offered in faith. And so unlike the rich who gave to be seen and fawned over, the widow gave with sincerity. She gave out of the overflow of her love for God. In her, we see the sincerity that marks those who have authenticity in their life before God. But we also see in her the sacrifice of authenticity before God, the sacrifice of authenticity before God. Jesus sees the widow put in the offering box two small copper coins. These ancient coins are sometimes translated as mites. The Romans called them leptas from a word which means peeled or fine. The idea was they're like wafer thin, They're barely anything. And the reason is because they're worth barely anything. The relative value of the day, get this now, 1 127th of a day's wage. So if you got paid $127 for a day's wage, this is a dollar. Okay. 1 /1 127th of a day's wage. Or today's figure is about a quarter of a cent. So, this lady gives two leptas, two mites. She's giving half a penny. That's what she's giving. I don't know about you, but when I was little, I saw a penny on the ground. I grabbed it. Today, I'm not bending down for that thing. Who cares? It's worthless. I mean, we debate all the time whether to even keep printing the penny or minting it. I guess you don't print pennies unless it's like digital 3D, but that's something else. Uh, but whether or not we're going to mint these coins, they're, they're just basically worthless unless you've got, you know, this big bag and you put it on the put it and say, here, I'm going to pay for this thing with, you know, half a million pennies. And they're going to say, take it to the bank and bring back cash. We don't want to count those pennies, right? It, worthless. And this is what she gives, but it's all she had. All she had in the world was at least in terms of finances, was half a cent. Two leptas. So it's not surprising that Jesus describes her situation as one of poverty. These two small coins represented all of her financial resources, all of her security. No matter how small it was, this this is what it was. Given the direness of her situation, no one in Israel, let alone God, would have said, hey, keep one for yourself. Keep one for yourself. And yet as she approaches the boxes of the temple offering, what does she do? Clink, clink. All she has goes into the horn to be given in devotion and honor and love and worship to her God. Others are giving hundreds and hundreds of times this woman gave, but Jesus says she gave more than all of them. Why? Because though they contributed out of their abundance, she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had. Let's be honest. If Donald Trump or Bill Gates gives a few million dollars to a charity, do they even miss it? I'm not saying they shouldn't give the money, but do they miss it? Why are they giving it? Why do they bring out that big fat check that's like 20 times normal size and and have a photo when when, when they give it? I, I think I know what if someone only had $10? That's it. Literally $10. One bill. And they gave it all to the same charity. Who gave more? The person who gave less because they gave all that they have. And it's that principle of sacrifice that we should take away as evidence of spiritual authenticity in the life of this widow. So, so if you're here and, and you're better off than your peers... Your finances are in order. You have extra. You get to pretty much go and buy something without ever checking how much is in your bank account. And you give generously to this church. Don't think that you're somebody special because you give generously. Don't think that you deserve something more from God because you give generously to this church. Be humble about what you give. Realize that you're giving not to, not to be made much of, but to, be made, but to make much of Christ as ministry is done in his name, that others might see him. And if you are here and you struggle with finances, if if, if you are counting pennies, don't ever feel like whatever you give is inferior to anybody else. Don't feel like God can't use what you gave to accomplish something great. Remember, it's not the quantity, but the quality of what is being offered that God is concerned with. Now, this morning, we've got these two examples, don't we? As we think about these things, what if we feel convicted that we're more like the hypocrites? What if we see in their sin our sin? What do we do? What do we do? Maybe we're not the hypocrite, but we know we're not the widow. We know we can never, at least right now, we can never fully Sacrifice that much the Lord's work. What what do we do? How do we because the Bible's not just here to say, example, example, there you go, you know how to live. That's not enough. That's what the law did, and people were condemned because they can't keep the law. What do they need? They need gospel grace, they need God's spirit enabling a changed heart that will produce changed behavior. So, So so what do we do? How do we begin moving ourselves? towards spiritual authenticity, I would say start with three things. First of all, consider your treasure. Consider your treasure. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? Where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. So what do you love the most? What do you think you need more than anything else? When you close your eyes at night and begin to to, to get into sleepy time, what's the first thing your mind goes to? If you're daydreaming, what pops in your mind the most? What is the one thing if I force you to write down a piece of paper, if I said the one thing that if you lost today, you would be devastated and even suicidal, not knowing how you could go on? That's what that's your treasure right there. You answer those questions, that's your treasure. That's where your heart is. That's what you're gonna worship, that's what you're gonna serve. If family is your treasure, you, you, you are going to cut losses on everything to preserve your family. Doesn't matter what it is. If work is your treasure, then you're going to sacrifice your family on the altar of hard work. If ministry is your treasure rather than God, then the same things going to happen. People are going to be collateral damage. My family will be collateral damage. All kinds of other things are going to be offered up and, and, and cut away from my life if I think ministry is my treasure. God should be our treasure. God should be our treasure. And, and, and so if we, as we consider what that treasure is, if God is not our treasure, then secondly, cultivate gospel affections. Cultivate gospel affections. What do I mean by this? I mean cultivate affection, love for God that is driven by the gospel. So tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. King was a flawed man. If you read any honest biography, he was a man with... Clay feet like all of us. He had some wonky theology in his areas. But he loved his people. He loved this country. What he did was not just for African Americans. It was for the United States of America and everyone who lived here. He was willing to be the focus of unfounded government investigations and illegal harassment. He was willing to be slandered and spit on and even take beatings for the equality of all Americans. And so we look up to him. We want to to model his example of standing for truth in nonviolent ways. How much more Christ, though? How much more did Christ in love for his people endure the wrath of God for them? They might be guilty, though found innocent, deserving of hell, but declared righteous and forgiven. When you begin meditating on that truth, when you make it your daily habit to take even just one verse of concentrated gospel truth from the scriptures and, and begin to meditate that and roll it around in your mind and, and as it were mentally, me- mentally chew and savor this, that, that this amazing grace that has been given to us, then you cannot help but begin to love God who first loved you. Your your genuine affections will be moved to the degree that your love for for any power or prestige or prosperity will quickly begin to wane in light of real love that can only be found in God. If God is simply a means to an end or a judge to appease, you're never gonna sacrifice for him. You're never gonna love him in any real sense over the long haul. But if he is your father, if God is your father, who at great personal sacrifice to himself, ensures that you can be adopted as his children. If he has demonstrated that he is committed to you until the very end, that no one can drag you out, nor can you yourself climb out of his loving, tender, compassionate care, embodied in the grip of his hand, then it will e- be easy for him to become your treasure. And when that happens, or perhaps wanting to help it happen, you should count others higher than yourself. Count others higher than yourself. That's Paul's advice in Philippians 2. Again, we look to Christ in faith as Savior. But then very quickly, we follow him as our example. And Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Rather than striving for the approval of others in places of of honor at the table, follow Christ in the place of service. Serving others is one of the most powerful ways to kill the sin of pride and arrogance and hypocrisy in your life. You clean a toilet in this church, not your own toilet at home. It, it's gonna say something about how you how you think of other people, how what you think of Christ. When his disciples have been walking all day, their feet are gross and disgusting, he's the one. He should have been last. He was the honored guest. But he's the first one to grab the basin, to grab a towel, to sit, and begin washing off the dirt, the muck, the animal feces off his disciples. Serve others. Count them higher than yourself. Phil Riken was formerly the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church and. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He now serves as the president of Wheaton College. But before all that, he was just a student at Westminster Theological Seminary. And according to him, in one of the main halls of that seminary, there was, while he was there, a framed notice on the wall. It was something that he said often caught his attention, impressed him all the while, and he still thinks about today. Here's what that little framed notice said Quote, Fanny Mulder was called to glory on October 20th, 1987. In a letter from her attorney, we learned that she had the only she had only the following personal property in her possession when she died, having been on Title 19 for the last few years. And then it actually goes on to list every single thing she had when she died. Six robes, two sweaters, thirteen adult diapers, nineteen hospital gowns, one pair of slippers, five pairs of socks, and two socks that didn't match. A purse, a mirror, an old thimble, a toothbrush, a comb, some soap, some powdered bottles, and a pair of reading glasses that she needed for her two copies of the Bible and her Psalter for singing. In addition to a broken radio, the only other thing that Fanny Mulder had in her possession was money. And the seminary only found out about Moulder Mulder and, and all of these things because her lawyer came and said that she felt so strongly that she needed to invest even in death in the kingdom work that she had bequeathed her money to the seminary. I said, well, how much is it? 12 cents. So here under this plaque, in this case, in Machen Hall, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, still sets the dime and the two pennies. Now that seems like nothing. You're like, why bother? But I want you to think about all the students, all the faculty, all the staff, all the donors who walk past Machen Hall, a hall that's named after probably the greatest Presbyterian theologian of the modern age. So they're going to be there and they read the story and they see the dime of those two cents. And I want to tell you, I think that God has probably used that 12 cents to leave an indelible mark on more people than a million dollars can ever. Why? Because they are a lasting testimony to a woman who gave everything she had to God. Everything. So whether it's spiritual or whether it's physical, let us pray that we likewise would give Christ all that we have. Father, I can't help but imagine that most of us are probably shamed right now by Fanny Mulder's love and generosity for you. We are so quick to defend our lifestyles and the hypocrisy that we have, not just in finances, but even in good things like ministry and how we serve you. We have our preferences, we have our traditions, and those things become so much more important to us than just being your people. About putting everything on the table of writing you a blank check and saying, Here I am. Send me. Down the street across town, or to the nations. Father, we we don't want to be like the hypocrites. We don't want to be those that give you praise on Sunday with our lips, but deny you with our lives during the week. Father, we want to be spiritually authentic because you deserve it. You are worth that worship. But Father, we also know we'll have lasting effects, not just for all our souls, but for the souls of those who see us, who see that Christ is worth worshiping. Christ is worth sacrificing for. Christ is worth gutting the hypocrisy from our souls. And then they too will put their faith in Him as we proclaim the gospel. So Father, do a work in our hearts. Cause us to, to see, to be aware of the dangers that are so prevalent, so, so, so close to the surface of where we live of hypocrisy and to strive like this widow for a faithful authenticity in our life with you. God, may everything that is visible about us on the outside reflect genuinely who we are in the inside. And may what is seen be an evident, passionate love for your son of whom we claim to be disciples. We ask it in his name. Amen.